You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Tina Show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to avoid becoming zombie bait, or in other words, how frailty and obesity are very often two sides of the same coin and how they lead to severely worse outcomes with not only COVID-19, but pretty much any other condition that could possibly hit you in your lifetime. All in all, we don't want to be zombie bait. With the current way things are going, uh, I joke that it's a real possibility. And I'm going to start off by telling you a joke. This is a joke between a friend, a good friend of mine and I. And it started when we were in my clinic, I test grip strength on patients, or I did for a, a time. And what I found most often and why I quit doing it was because most patients' grip strength was atrocious. Um, and then I was hanging out with my lifelong best friend, and we were on vacation together, and we were doing pull-ups at an assisted pull-up uh, gizmo, you know, at the gym where you can weight the machine and the machine will assist you part way. And she was unable to, even with full body weight support, unable to pull herself up, not because she wasn't strong enough, but because she did not have the grip strength to hold on and pull herself up. And I said, you know what, you're going to be zombie bait if you don't take care of that. And the joke, the joke began there. And so uh, a friend of mine who we we had this inside joke together, somebody asked us once, well, what, what does that mean? What does it mean? What do you mean when you say zombie bait? And we say, well, we're, we were both really, really fit at the time. And we worked very hard to be so and we both had overcome a lot of health issues to get there. And so we we were joking and we said, you know, when the zombie apocalypse happens, there's going to be certain people you definitely don't take along because they're not going to be an asset, right? So if if they can't keep up, if they can't uh, swing an axe, if they can't actually contribute to the group in some way, if they're a drag, we're going to leave them, right? And so... What what is zombie bait? Zombie bait are the people you take along who really are not much of an asset, who probably complain a lot, don't have good grip strength, <laughs> don't really contribute to the group at all, or in any good possible way. And so you keep them around until the zombies attack, and then you throw them to the zombies. They're zombie bait. And I know that sounds terrible, but it was a joke. And we all laughed because we got it. That is... That's what it's coming down to for people in the sense that if you can't keep up with what's going on with a variant that with in all due respect, I understand that there are still losses happening from this variant. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it is showing itself the Omicron variant. We are now on, you know, the first few days of January. Uh, we're about, a, you know, gosh, what are we on the, the 10th or 11th? And it's showing itself to be very mild. It's just like how we as human beings have survived colds and flus for millennia. We, we too will get through this. We are treating it as if the whole world should remain locked down and in fear and in panic over, in my opinion, what is now a cold. And I know that some people are still getting sick. And I'm going to explain to you a little bit why that's happening and what you can do about it. There is definitely a reason. This isn't just a, oh my goodness, uh, what's happening? What, what can we do? We're, we're, we're going on our third year here of this. We have some ideas, we have some understanding. And I really, really wish this conversation would start happening on a grander scale because we have the information. We've had it all along. We've had it since long before COVID or SARS-CoV-2 ever made itself known. And it's been nothing but frustrating for me to try to bring this information to light and as you've heard me say before, I have been attacked constantly by those in my own profession calling me ableist and all kinds of names for even suggesting that people go out and exercise. And then on social media, people who don't understand the value of exercise or of muscle mass as an actual organ system of health and a sign of vitality, um, just constantly attacked on that platform as well. People don't have any respect for physical fitness anymore. We used to, even when I was young, we had the Presidential Physical Fitness Awards. People strive to win that. I used to win it a lot every year. Um, we used to take great pride in being physically fit. If you look back at videos of PE classes in the 1960s in American high schools, I mean, shoot, it, it looks like boot camp, right? And these people were fit and, and able-bodied. I understand that not everybody can do all of those things. 
And my response to that is move what you can, right? Always move what you can. I've seen too many videos of people who were severely brain damaged, neurological issues, incapacitated in upper or lower body. Um, I've seen too many videos of them winning and succeeding for me to believe that there's nothing that can be done. I think that is an excuse that I am really tired of hearing. And it is my firm belief that if everybody were to exercise on the regular, we would not be in this current pandemic anymore. We wouldn't be losing lives nearly at the rate that we have if people were actually moving, if the health authorities had come out and said, get exercising every day, start walking, start moving, start strengthening your body. This is free, right? Sit-ups are free, push-ups are free. Hanging from something that you can find at your local elementary school or, or middle school, you know, a bar, hanging from a bar, doing pull-ups, that's all free. And we used to have a great respect for people who took care of their bodies. I am not a religious person in the sense that I am aligned with any organized religion, but I am a spiritual person. And I believe that we are just spiritual beings walking around in meat suits that God gave us. And what a atrocity and, and it's, to me, it's blasphemy to have a spirit, you know, to have your spirit housed in a meat suit that you're not taking care of, right? So if you're, if you're a Christian person or you're a religious person, the way you respect God and, and this gift of having this body is to take care of it. And if you're not a religious person, I still encourage you to get your shit together because you're not going to make it through all of the trials and tribulations of health that life is going to bring your way. We know that people who enter into chronic disease who have muscle mass do significantly better than people who don't. We know that people who have muscle mass don't walk into chronic disease nearly as readily as those who don't. We know the implications of frailty and sarcopenia, which I'm going to go over. We understand how, how obesity and leading into that diabetic blood sugar meta uh, metabolism state that I've talked so much about, we know how that can contribute to further frailty and sarcopenia. So I'm going to talk about this a bit more. I have several other episodes that I am going to link in the show notes that I have covered parts of this conversation on, and I'd like you to go back and listen to them because this is way more important than you've been led to believe. And if you are not getting up and getting your body strong and working regularly, and I'm talking several times a day, towards battling frailty, especially if you're over the age of 40, when the odds are against you. I mean, once you pass 35, 40, uh, your body starts to go preferentially go into a sarcopenic or frail state. Sarcopenia is muscle wasting. And frailty is the state of being under-muscled, really, if you want to look at it in really simplistic terms. And so sarcopenia is an active disease process. Frailty is a condition of being. And the two of them together is basically a death sentence. We have so much literature. I was going through stacks of literature trying to decide what I wanted to pull out to talk about with you today. And I, I basically settled on the studies that were pertinent to COVID-19 just to back up a little, when this all started, I came out gunning on my social media platforms and my email list saying, hey, everybody lift weights, lift weights, lift weights. And God, I took a lot of slack for that. And I got a lot of pushback. Dr. Tina, what does lifting weights have to do with anything? Oh, my goodness. Going into SARS-CoV-2 infection, turning into COVID-19, the condition under muscle just sounded like a, a nightmare to me. Like, I can't think of a worse way to enter into an infectious process than to be under muscled. I know this because I've lived it. I've lived it repeatedly. I knew early on SARS-CoV-2 was leading to the condition called COVID-19. Um, I knew that was a wasting virus. You could just tell by what was happening. We knew it was hitting the diabetic population and the elder population with the most fervor and the obese population. We knew that when it, the studies were just coming out of China before COVID really took hold in the US. We had all that information. 
We, we literally had all that information, and yet it was never, ever brought up by the powers that be. You've never heard Fauci talk about it. You've never heard, I've never heard the Oregon Health Authority or our Governor Kate Brown talk about it, but they sure do talk about masking and double masking and triple masking and staying away from everybody. And, you know, you can sit down in a restaurant and take off your mask, but you got to put it back on when you stand up. I mean, all of this stuff that doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense with shoddy science to back it up. And yeah, there are some studies showing that there's a small um, effectiveness of masks, potentially, but nowhere near the studies we have showing what physical exercise can do for you. I have a whole podcast episode, episode 18, talking about how exercise is protective against COVID-19. And it is angering. It will anger you when you listen to that episode, if you haven't listened to it yet, at how effective and potent exercise is for protecting an individual. And yet that information was never shared with us. But we didn't need COVID-19 to tell us this. Anybody who has been studying uh, muscle science, exercise science, anyone keeping up with this, geriatrics, frailty and sarcopenia and obesity and diabetes in in, in any age group for that matter, knew this information from day one and yet it was silenced, it was made fun of, it was villainized, it's just been really, really ridiculous. So I'll ask you to go back and listen to episode 18. I'll ask you to listen to episode 12 uh, at the end, because that's a whole episode I did with coach Tony Gracia, who is the husband of my coach, my strength and conditioning coach. And we talked about how to gain muscle in a safe way. So I I highly encourage you to go listen to that because I don't want to go through all that information again. And episode 13, very interesting episode called Are You a Hot Mess of Health, where I talk in detail more about some of the ways that we end up being uh, an inflamed mess. And that inflammation leads to a lot of this wasting. It's a big chicken and egg scenario. And once the process starts, it gets real tricky to get out of. And the quickest and most efficient way out is to stop pouring lighter fluid on the fire, i.e. change your diet. And part two, and absolutely necessary is to strength train and to exercise, particularly strength training. I get asked a lot on social media, a lot. People will say, I've tried everything. What you're saying doesn't work. I do intermittent fasting. I eat a high protein diet, blah, blah, blah. It's not working. And I always ask back, are you lifting weights? And they say, no, there you go. There's your answer. I, I cannot overemphasize the power and the effectiveness of building muscle mass and why we need to do it. I could give you a big, long biochemistry lesson on why. And we could talk about hormone balancing all day, but I'm going to tell you straight up, you cannot heal your metabolism if you don't have muscle. You cannot balance your hormones if you don't have muscle. This is the thing that no one's telling you. They're telling you to take this supplement or that supplement. They're telling you to do this and that, but no one's telling you to strength train. I mean, a few of us are, but for the most part, all of the um, experts and influencers that have a niche topic where they're talking about gut restoration or recovery from a virus or whatever, hormones, you name it, very rarely do you hear them talk about strength training and strength and conditioning and what muscle mass can do for you. So I'm going to keep beating this drum (laughs) because it's just until people take responsibility for themselves and start lifting weights. If we had put as much emphasis on strength training as we did on ivermectin, we would be out of this pandemic, in my opinion. I mean, we have put so much merit on drugs and thank God for those drugs, right? Thank God for them. Thank God for supplements. None of this is a one-shot wonder. None of this is going to be the, oh, if you take enough vitamin D, you're going to be free and clear. Or if you take enough ivermectin, you're going to be free and clear. None of that matters if you're frail and sarcopenic. And, and usually that goes along with some level of obesity. And when I say obese, I don't mean you're a big person with a lot of fat mass. I mean, the bulk of your body mass percentage is adipose tissue. So you can be a real skinny person, a real thin looking lean person, but you have absolutely no muscle mass and you're a bag of bones with fat on the frame and there's no muscle there. So it's a state of being and it's really important to understand that it's that ratio, right? We're, We're actively building muscle and in doing so, we take care of a lot of the other issues. The fat will start to melt away muscle is way more metabolically active than anything. (laughs) So it literally burns up. It eats fat, if you will. And you get a metabolic burn for 
hours after a strength training session. There's so many benefits to it, but that's a, I'm going off on my rant here. So let's talk about frailty. There's one study that came out. Uh, it's, it, it was in BMC. It's different aspects of frailty and COVID-19 points to consider in the current pandemic and future ones. Uh, I believe the date on this was 2021 and it was BMC geriatrics. The conclusion was frail, older frail adults have a pre-existing immunopathological base that puts them at higher risk of undesired outcomes and death due to COVID-19 and poor response to COVID-19 vaccination. Again, another topic I've been trying to beat the drum on. The most susceptible to this virus are also the ones who are not responding well to the vaccine. We're now seeing this in real time and why we're seeing the need for boosters. Not everybody needs a booster. The people who are most susceptible need a booster, but that's my opinion, <laughs> right? We, I don't get to talk about that with any authority because I'll get, I'll get in trouble. So in my opinion, those who are most susceptible is who we should be reserving this booster rollout on if they want it. I don't think anybody should be mandated to do anything against their will for the sake of others' health. Um, this vaccine has not been shown to stop spread whatsoever. And now it's, if you listen to my episode last week and the week before, that we have the data. It's not stopping Omicron. It's not. The information you're hearing about boosters being effective was literally done in a test tube. They drew serum on boosted patients. They boosted people, drew serum on them, i.e. blood, and they found antibodies and they said, okay, good, it's great. And it gave them an extra few weeks. That's it. That's, that's the logic behind boosters, just so you know. Anyway, um, also in this article, they talk about how admission to the ICU should depend on their degree of frailty rather than their chronological age, which I think is very important, which is better to be screened using the CFS. And I'll talk about the CFS. It's a frailty scale that they use. They, they talked about this. This is very interesting. Uh, I, I believe this is a Romanian group. They talked about this, and I thought, wow, they, they mention a few times in here how if someone is so completely frail that they're not going to make it, that maybe those ICU beds and ventilators should be used on somebody who will, which I know sounds cruel. But when looking at things from a risk-benefit ratio, you have to understand that saving the people who – this is emergency medicine training 101. You save the people you can save first. And that's something we haven't talked about at all because people are so damn terrified of death and everybody gets so emotional about losing loved ones. It's very common for elders to perish each winter due to upper respiratory viruses. This is nothing new, and yet we have turned it into something new. And it, the flu virus takes many, many lives every year, young and old, mostly frail, sarcopenic people. <laughs> And it's, it's just, it's been really painful to watch how this has been managed. So anyway, I won't get into that part. I'm just going to talk to you about the frailty thing. Okay, so there is a condition called inflammaging. And this is a inflammatory state that progresses as we age. And it's unavoidable. In that, it's going to happen to all of us to some degree. Now, we can slow that significantly by choosing to lead a healthy lifestyle, but it inevitably is going to be a thing. You've heard me say this before, that if you get to a certain age, you're going to become diabetic no matter what. You're going to become insulin resistant no matter what. And that's part of this inflammation process. And I'm going to explain a little bit about it. I tried to do a post on it early on in the pandemic, but it didn't catch much. Um, it didn't gain much speed. I think it was over people's heads. I didn't think people... It's Again, it's one of those things we don't need to talk about um, on a 400 caption post <laughs> or character post, I should say. People get so upset about those posts. And I'm like, there's 400 characters, yo. There's only so much I can write. But let's talk about inflammaging. Inflammaging, in, inflammaging is this situation where as we age, we become more inflamed through a variety of mechanisms. There is an immunosenescence that goes along with that. I've talked about immunosenescence in the past. It's basically your immune system going to sleep. And with this becomes a reduced microbiota diversity in your body. And that's not just in your gut, that's in your lungs. All of your body has its own microbiota. You have your own microbiome. That becomes reduced and um, a little more, or less diverse. So less 
less overall and less diversity, which is a very dangerous place to be because we need our good bugs to fight the bad bugs. And the frailty mechanisms that are happening through the this inflammation and immunosenescence coupled with the loss of diversity and numbers of microbiota is just a, well, they refer to it as an ominous trinity in the frail adult population. Not looking forward to the inevitable future of frailty, me neither. Don't worry, I got you. My 10-day Don't Be Zombie Bait Challenge. I launched it in 2021. It was joined by over 14,000 people, some of whom still stopped me in the street to tell me how amazing it was for them. They're still doing the exercises. They're still doing the mindset strategies. They're still working on the assignments that we presented in the challenge. It's 10 days to a more resilient you. What you get is a daily challenge video for 10 days straight. You wake up, you sign into the portal, you get your video, you get your education, and you get your homework assignment emailed to you to keep you accountable. There's mindset, strategies, and exercises all included. There's bonuses as well. My winter is coming two-hour masterclass. You don't want to miss. It's how I prep for upper respiratory season every year. My winter is coming cheat sheet, my free book, Pain-Free and Strong, along with several guides on how to assess yourself for metabolic syndrome, how to assess yourself for appropriate lab values, what to eat guide, plus Nice discounts inside of both of my Dr. Tina stores, including my CBD store throughout the challenge. Grab the link in the show notes. You can grab this podcast listeners, get 2021 prices. Link is in the show notes. Join us there. Don't be zombie bait challenge. There's a community inside as well of other like-minded people. This is how you get started on not being zombie bait. All right, so inflammation and immunosenescence, this happens with obesity too. And that's what I want to talk about because I made a post the other day talking about frailty and obesity. And somebody said, wait, I thought that was the opposite of obesity. No, no, no. Obese, the obese state is also, a, a, if you look at an inflammaging state and an immunosenescent state and a reduced microbiota state, you you might as well, and we're talking about an older population, right? We're talking about the older frail adult who's aging into this, this triad. You're basically looking at obese people in the same exact way, especially if they're older, of course. But even a young obese body is going to act more like an older body when I'm talking about these mechanisms. So keep that in mind. Inflammation in and of, of itself, the molecules that are secreted in the inflammatory state drives the frailty, which in turn, the frailty drives the inflammation. And that's the chicken and egg. You start to get into a cycle that is very difficult to get out of without muscle mass. But because of the inflammation being driven by the frailty state and the sarcopenic state, you it's hard to get on top of the muscle building. And so these are people that might have a harder time gaining muscle because they are in this chronically inflamed state. And the those going into this inflamed state actually are the ones most at risk for the cytokine storm. So your frail little old lady and your middle-aged obese man are both going to be at very high risk for the cytokine storm because they're both sitting in a very similar chemical soup, if you will. So previous studies in older adults have shown that elevated serum IL-6, which is an interleukin-6, it's a very pro-inflammatory cytokine, um, and C-reactive protein levels are associated with significant risk of developing frailty and mortality, i.e. death. Another aspect of high uh, relevance is the immunological similarity between COVID-19 and frailty. And so the states that COVID-19 can induce in a person's body what they're saying is it it somewhat mimics that chronic frailty state. And what you end up with is a soup of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which get completely out of control in the face of this virus. Presumably, in addition to weak immunity in frail older persons, they have a lot of pre-existing conditions as well. And so they've got these pre-existing chronic inflammatory conditions that put them at even higher risk. And so a lot of them are walking around on polypharmacy, meaning lots of medications. They are not exercising. They're usually not eating well. 
this is especially true in the elderly population for lots of reasons, which are sad. Many of them are living alone. They're not preparing meals anymore because their spouse has passed away. They're starting to have dentition problems is a big issue. Uh, they lose the ability to digest proteins and other and absorb other nutrients well because their stomach lining is starting to atrophy. So they're not even getting the minerals and the vitamins and the amino acids that they're eating. If they are eating it, they don't have an easy time chewing things up. They're um, mitochondria are starting to putz out, so they're not having good energy generation. So there's lots and lots of reasons for this. But all in all, we and it doesn't have to be this way. That's that's I, I can't solve all the world's problems in a podcast. So that's a conversation for another day. Our elderly folks don't have to be treated this way. This is not the way that their lives have to go. But this is the way it seems to be in the United States for most elderly folks. And this is the reason why I harp on my mom. I mean, I harp on her. She is I tell her daily, get, keep your protein up, lift your weights, go in your sauna, go in your far infrared sauna. These are non-negotiables, especially past the age of like, say, 60. I mean, that's just not negotiable in my world. So anyway, they've looked at autopsies of persons who have died of COVID-19, and they found all of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. This is interestingly, when they've done blood assays on frail patients, it's the same profile. They have the same profile as those who are having a hard time or dying of COVID-19. You see what I'm saying? They, they both induce a very similar sort of pattern in patients. And so imagine going into COVID-19 already in that state, and now COVID hits you, and it just sends the whole thing into a downward spiral. And so this is, of course, I mean, old people die, yes, but I'm trying to give you a mechanism of why. And then again, going back to this microbiota situation where it's reduced and the diversity is decreased. That's a bad, bad situation, especially in the gut where there's a lot of ACE2 receptors and inflamed gut is going to obviously bind more virus. And so you're going to have a higher viral load. And then we want to consider the microbiota diversity in the lungs, right? So a reduced microbiota diversity accompanied by immunosenescence, which is an immune system that is asleep and not waking up, and inflammaging would predispose frail adults to develop the severe form of COVID-19. And we can help, right? We can get these folks moving. But what did we do? We locked them up and completely and threw away the key, completely isolated them. So the frailty situation and the obesity situation is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. We are literally putting Americans in the exact physical state that COVID-19 needs to kill them. And yes, we're dealing with a less severe variant. And I, you heard me early on sound dismissive. I'm not because we don't have the same we were already, uh, how do I put this? We were already a compromised population when it came to dealing with things because our health as a country is so atrocious overall. I mean, really, we're 88% of us are metabolically unsound. It's just a mess. And I knew that when COVID hit, it was going to be a complete nightmare, which it was. But the worst part is, is we've induced an even more tremendous pro-inflammatory state and immunosenescence and frailty and sarcopenia and obesity by locking everybody up for so long, and especially the way that we have sequestered our, our elders when we should be honoring them and taking care of them with the respect they deserve, we lock them away and wouldn't let anybody see them or talk to them. So now they're dealing with dementia to go along with the whole thing. It's really beyond tragic and it it will drive me crazy if I think about it too much. So we shall move along. Um, oh, I did notice today, actually, Mike Mutzel, Metabolic Mike, High Intensity Health. You guys no, we're, we're friends. I love him. He's going to come on the podcast here soon. He posted a post on Instagram today showing that the average American had gained 41 pounds since the onset of the pandemic. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight. That's not 10 pounds or five pounds. That's 41 pounds. That in and of itself is going to push most people into the obese category or the, or the severe more severely obese, morbidly obese. I hate to use that word, but that's the term. Um, most Americans were already overweight or obese, like the, the a high, high, high percentage of Americans overall. And it's hard to get the exact number, but I would say easily two thirds of Americans, if not more, were already overweight or obese. And now they're probably much more obese. And that's really heartbreaking. So let's talk about frailty and vaccination. 
An important aspect to consider in frail adult is that older adults especially is that their potential response immunologically to vaccines is not so great. And you've heard me say this before in reference to the flu vaccine. We've seen it now with the COVID-19 vaccine. In fact, frail older adults were excluded from the COVID-19 vaccine trials. I didn't know that. I just learned that recently. The reason being is they don't seroconvert. So the population that needs the vaccine the most were excluded from the trials. Isn't that interesting? And it's because they're associated with this this immunosenescence, this inflammaging process, this frailty process. It's associated with poor immunological response or seroconversion. So you can vaccinate them all day and they're just simply not going to have a robust response. And so they're not going to it's not going to make the studies look good. So I thought that was tragic and terrible to hear that they weren't included in the studies. This known poor response to vaccination among frail older adults has triggered doctors in Norway, as an example, to even assess for frailty before deciding whether or not to proceed with vaccination. Because frail adults, uh, I think there were 23 of them in this one study that died shortly after receiving the vaccine. So not only are they at higher, so this is the group that's at higher risk of death with COVID-19. No one's talked about this at all. I have not seen the word frailty mentioned anywhere on mainstream media or in any of the health authorities protocols. And yet this is the group that's at high risk for dying from the vaccine. And they were disc- they were not even included in the studies and they don't seroconvert well. So even after vaccination, because of their potential poor response to vaccines, it's predicted that older frail adults will be exposed to the same risk of infection or even, in the best case, a slightly lower risk than if they were not vaccinated. So we're putting them at risk by vaccinating them, potentially, and they it may not even show much of a benefit for them, which is just terrible to me. And then it's terrible that we haven't heard this, that this isn't coming out, that we're not seeing this on the CDC. We're not seeing Fauci talk about this. But that's that's what it is. We know, and we've known this from the beginning, that frailty in COVID-19 patients is associated with prolonged hospitalization. If they don't die, they're in there for longer. Um, All-cause mortality in general, like I said, I mean, pretty much if you're walking around in the world as a frail individual, your chances of dying from anything are significantly higher. And they had higher mortality risk or death risk for the next two weeks following discharge from the hospital. So if they didn't die in the hospital, they still were in there longer. They were using more of the hospital's resources and they were they still have a high risk of death or higher, I should say, after walking out the door of the hospital. That was where the paper went into considering critical, critical care services because they were overwhelmed at the time. Um, there was a shortage of ventilators worldwide. And so they were saying that maybe we should consider taking special arrangements to avoid disproportionate care when if a very, very frail person walks in, the chances of them surviving it are pretty slim. And this was in reference to some of the more severe variants, right? This isn't in reference to Omicron. Consistently, the short-term survival after admission in ICU of older adults has is inversely associated with a degree of frailty in advanced age. So that's the thing. Not all old people are going to be frail and not... Uh, everybody's going to die. But if you look at it logically, those who are the most frail are going to have the, obviously the most risk of, of not making it or ending up with a ventilator. So, okay, there is ways to screen for frailty. And I'm going to get into that. It's not awesome. There's, there's not awesome ways to do it. <laughs> you can put somebody in an MRI, you can put them in a CT, do a CT scan. Those are, in, uh, I, I, when I say invasive, I don't think CT scans are super safe. They're a massive dose of radiation. Of course, if you need to have an MRI or CT, MRI is not a massive dose of radiation, but it is going into a giant magnet, which I'm sure isn't awesome for your cells. And often there's a gadolinium contrast dye used, which we know can be neurotoxic and is a heavy metal that deposits in the brain and has been linked to MS. So I personally... I'm not keen on MRIs and CTs unless absolutely necessary. So I wouldn't encourage you to go out and get a full body scan with either of these machines to find out if you're frail. 
I'll tell you how I determined frailty in my practice in a minute. But these studies are looking at the clinical frailty scale, and it gives you a number. I'll in the show notes I'll link to a clinical frailty scale so you can see it. It gives you a number, and the higher the number, so like grade one is very fit, grade nine is terminally ill, for instance. So the higher the CFS score or the clinical frailty scale score, the higher the risk of death, obviously, and because they're more frail. And it's not a great, great, great scale. I don't think any of these are. I read through a paper that went through all of them. There's scales all over the world. Some of them require you to actually do some testing of your patient in the office, which isn't super specific. And there's, eh, they're just okay. So I do like this clinical frailty scale. It seems to be adopted throughout the world to some degree. And, and we'll, we'll stick to that one. They looked at four that this uh, European very elderly intensive patient study, which included 4,000 older adults greater than or equal to 80 years admitted to the ICU has shown that the CFS score was inversely associated with short-term survival. So higher score, higher risk of death is what that means. And so that's a decent study size and we'll go with that. And indeed, many studies have shown that a higher CFS scores were associated with prolonged hospitalization, poor outcomes, higher mortality rates among older adults for lots of reasons, including, of course, COVID-19. Some studies say the cutoff for a good CFS score is five or greater than five. Some say um, six. Some say, I'm sorry, lower. <laughs> five, six. Other studies have shown seven. So hard to say. Again, I'm, I'm not loving any of these. But the conclusions of this paper were that older adults, in particular frail ones, have a weaker immune system, reduced microbiota diversity and numbers, longstanding inflammatory status, or longer standing than the general population, and obviously this immunosenescence, which is that weaker immune system. These factors contribute to the severity of COVID-19 and the high mortality rate. Moreover, frailty in patients with COVID-19 is associated with poor outcomes, mortality in the ICU, readmission, and short survival post-ICU discharge. Frailty is associated with a poor response to vaccination and more side effects. And hence, as a precautionary measure, it might be reasonable to screen older adults for frailty before vaccination. And then it goes on to talk about the allocation of healthcare resources, which I covered uh, briefly and talking about how we should screen everybody for frailty before they end up in the hospital so that we can help them do something about it as practitioners so that they aren't left on their own. But of course, that hasn't happened in any of the maybe you guys have heard. If you have email the podcast at podcast at drtina.com and let me know if you've heard anybody talking about frailty. So far as public health officials go, has your state or your country mentioned this at all? I, I'm not seeing it. Okay, so what about obesity? Many people asked if if you're obese, does that mean you're not frail because you're bigger? The answer is no, especially older obese people. Older obese um, individuals are more likely to be frail than those with normal body mass index. They conducted a systematic review, meta-analysis, to clarify the association between obesity and the risk of frailty and whether there was a relationship between BMI and frailty in community-dwelling older adults aged 60 years and older. They looked at eight databases, and they looked at 12 observational studies comprising over 38,000 people about, and they found that the relative risks for incident frailty were pooled using a random effects model, and they found a positive association between abdominal obesity and frailty. Abdominal obesity and frailty. Where have you heard someone talk about abdominal obesity before? You've heard me. You've heard me drone on and on about waist circumference, right? And again, I don't get into these big, long studies on Instagram. I just say, hey, get your waist circumference in check. It's important. This is why. People in the higher category of waist circumference had a pooled 57% higher risk of frailty than those with normal waist circumference. 57% higher risk of frailty than those with a normal waist circumference, right? And they looked at other studies and they, they looked at other meta-analysis. We have shown that obesity or underweight is associated with an increased risk of frailty in community-dwelling older adults. So this goes back to whether you're overweight or underweight, being in a frail state is, is dangerous. And that can be a, a problem. 
What about younger people? I get asked that question. Well, if they're younger, they certainly, you know, people think they're, I was, I thought I was immortal. (laughs) I thought I was immune to everything when I was young. I was immortal. Everything was going to be fine. Fine. What they found was in young adults admitted to emergency general surgical units, they found that they had about a 16% rate of frailty. And that actually matches the rate in the general population. I've looked at other studies that showed that about 15% of gen pop is frail. And that's looking at older adults. So I'm going to extrapolate here and say, well, if we've got young people at a 16% rate, and we've got older people at a 15% rate, I'm going to guess that the general rate of frailty in the entire population is probably around the same number, right? Probably around 15%. 15% is a lot of people. It's far less than the amount of people who've died of COVID. But it's it's a lot of people and and that's worth being concerned about. So let's talk about screening a little bit for sarcopenia and frailty. Sarcopenia, again, is muscle wasting, just for clarification. It's it's the active act of muscle wasting, but it really is physical frailty. That's what it leads to. So the words are somewhat used interchangeably. When you say sarcopenic, you mean someone who's wasting, um, and it means they're frail. So both sarcopenia and physical frailty represent an early stage of physical dependence and disability in old age. But I would say in all ages, to be honest with you, I have seen wasting in young people. It's just not, I mean, think about most kids today, most, and I'm talking when I I shouldn't, I should clarify. I think of my daughter as a kid, she's 21. (laughs) When you see folks sitting around doing a whole lot of nothing, playing video games all day, and they're not exercising, they're probably frail or in some level of frailty, right? Sarcopenia entails a progressive loss of skeletal muscle mass along with declines in muscle strength and physical performance. Unfortunately, what happens, and I've talked about this before in the podcast, is you get a marbling of muscle fat, marbling of the muscle that comes with it, and it all cycles into this chronic diabetic state, really, this chronic busted metabolism state. There's really no way out of a busted metabolism without muscle. That's... I firmly believe that you, if you have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or metabolic syndrome or whatever you want to call it, the really the only way out is through dietary changes, but that alone won't do it. It's through strength and conditioning. It's through building muscle. I've met many people, you probably know some, maybe this sounds like you too, who went on the ketogenic diet or did the carnivore diet and they lost a ton of weight and they feel amazing, but they're really just still pretty squishy fat, like skinny fat. They they just look uh, deflated. They, they've lost maybe a tremendous amount of weight, but they still have skinny arms and legs and they have lots of loose skin and they, they look smaller and they're wearing smaller clothes and their, their health uh, metabolic markers are probably improving to some degree, but they're kind of stuck there and it's easy for them to regain the weight and if they change this strict diet at all. And you know what I'm talking about. I know that some of you listening have been through this. I see it often. Those are the people who are not actively lifting weights. You have to do both. I, I think it's a crime to tell somebody to do a ketogenic diet and not lift weights or to do carnivore and not lift weights. They they are one in the same. And with that, I would say all the things I talk about, getting enough sleep, getting enough hydration, getting enough sunlight. Sarcopenia is reported in about 60% of older adults aged 80 years or above. So it goes real high when you start looking at age. Statistics predict that the number of sarcopenic older adults will double in the next 30 years. Likewise, the number of older adults in need for long-term rehabilitation will quadruple by 2050. You guys, we have an emergency on our hands. This is why COVID is hitting us so hard. Primarily because of the increased prevalence of musculoskeletal disorders, frailty, sarcopenia, visual and hearing impairments, fatigue, cognitive decline, sleeping disorders, and depression, all of which can be significantly improved with proper nutrition and strength training and muscle mass. They can be significantly improved. I'm not saying it's going to cure everything, but if people were lifting weights and eating well and eating nutrient-dense foods, we'd have a different world. And it breaks my heart because I can't. There's no amount of droning on about this that's going to change things on a grand scale. We're just, and I love my audience and I I love my listeners and I love my followers on social media, but we're a small little blip in the matrix, right? We're just a small little group. And so 
all we can do is lead by example because people really don't want to hear this. I, I really thought that the real risk of death with this virus, and while it has a, a low death rate, I, I get that, the real risk of death from a pandemic hitting the world, you would think would spur people into action, but they didn't. They just took their free Krispy Kremes and their three or four sh- boosters and called it good. And there's still, you've heard me say this before, that I think the same amount of people are going to perish in, in the end, whether it's from the current virus situation or some variant that doesn't agree later with the antibody response from the vaccines. I am still concerned about ADE. I don't think it's going to come down the chute right away, but um, some, you know, it's going to take some virus that's similar but different enough to not like the antibodies uh, that are being produced or that the T cells later produce. And that's a concern, but we don't have to talk about that now. Loss of muscle mass contributes to countless numbers of adverse effects, including chronic pain, increased risk for chronic debilitating disorders like obesity and type 2 diabetes, frailty, and progressive decline in functional capacity and independence. Old people with muscle weakness have a 4.3-fold greater risk for slow gait speed and a 2.6-fold greater risk for severe mobility limitation. That's terrible. And so sad and so unnecessary if we could just keep our older folks moving along. Physical disability in sarcopenic people is common regardless of ethnicities, health behaviors, fat mass, and comorbidities. I disagree with that health behaviors part. This is from the study. This is in the International Journal of Endocrinology, and it's titled Screening for Sarcopenia, Physical Frailty in the COVID-19 Era. (laughs) And I'll give you links to all of these. There's a lot of really good stuff in here, and I don't want to take all day going over it, but I'll hit some highlights. Sarcopenia is a disorder that entails chronic inflammation, malnutrition, and metabolic and endocrine dysregulation, as well as several systemic dysfunctions. Interestingly, this makes sense, right? If your muscles are wasting, so does your diaphragm, and diaphragmatic muscle thickness is considerably reduced in sarcopenic individuals, which may evoke respiratory failure in critically ill patients. Therefore, sarcopenia stands for a key risk factor that heightens the vulnerability to COVID-19. I mean, you need your diaphragm working full throttle when you are dealing with a respiratory virus that if you've had it, I had it. And the, the difficulty breathing part was real. That was one of my first and lasting symptoms. I've cleared past it, but it was, it was concerning. And I was actively doing breathing techniques to try to make sure my diaphragm was cooperating with me as best as it could. So, and I'm sure that's not something the general population even thinks to do, but I'm telling you here, if your muscles are wasting, so is your diaphragm and that sucks. Pre-existing sarcopenia is associated with progressing to disease severity in COVID-19 patients reflected by polypharmacy, multiple organ failure, intensive care unit admission, increased need for mechanical ventilation and mortality, which is death. Among community dwelling older adults, muscle mass is an independent correlate of maximum expiratory pressure and indicator, uh, an indicator of respiratory muscle strength. Myokines produced by wasting muscle like interleukin-6 and interleukin-7 are considerably, um, can considerably alter immunity. So myokines generally that are produced from healthy, well-trained skeletal muscle are anti-inflammatory. But when they come out of wasting muscle or muscle that is undergoing that sarcopenic transformation, they are pro-inflammatory. Cytokine storms associated with COVID-19 infection activate oxidative and catabolic signaling which is catabolic is more wasting, which accelerate most muscle protein degradation leading to skeletal muscle loss. This part next that I'm going to read to you and share with you is really, really important. I've mentioned that this virus is a wasting virus. It took my rear end right off. I knew it would be, again, I talked about it earlier in this episode, going into this infection process with as much muscle on your body is key. Listen to this. Significant weight loss is recorded in 61% of recovering COVID-19 patients. In 26.2% of these patients, weight loss was greater than 10% of body weight. So to give you a little backstory on that, when I was in medical school, 
you're taught so much information that you start to cram things into categories of like, this is okay and manageable, this is bad, right? And so losing 5% of your body weight during any kind of acute process is bad. 10% is real bad. So losing 10% of your body weight during an acute infection is really the kiss of death. And so we, if 26.2% of these patients were losing 10% of their body weight, that's significant and concerning. And again, a conversation that should be being had by health officials, lift weights, gain muscle mass, go into this process with some reserves. Not to mention, if you go in with healthy metabolic muscle mass and a healthy metabolism, you're probably not going to get nearly as sick. But that's, you know, that was, I already went over that in another episode. <laughs> we already talked about that one. Body composition estimation in ICU admitted COVID-19 patients denotes excessive loss of muscle mass following their ICU stay. So if you do end up in ICU or you do end up on a ventilator, you're really going to probably endure some wasting. And that's very, very concerning. Again, we're talking, this is from the older variants, but still, this is the case, whether you have a bad case of the flu, or you just get hit really hard by a cold virus, these, this process is similar in all cases. So I just wanted to share that because that 10% number got me when my husband was sick with COVID, I was just coming out of it. And I was taking care of him. He really started losing weight at a certain point. And that was an inflammatory process, right? I knew the sarcopenia had kicked in because of the chronic inflammation that the virus was driving. And so he was in this chronic pro-inflammatory state and he was having sarcopenia induced by it. And so my, I shifted how I cared for him. I talked about this in an episode about my COVID experience. You can go back and listen to, but I shifted the way I was treating him from dealing with viral load to dealing with inflammation. I was I got much more serious about dealing with inflammation because at that point the sarcopenia was the telltale sign that he was in this chronic inflamed state and it was it was going badly. Um, they went on to say in the study that sarcopenia can be mitigated in early stages by physical activity, high protein diets and supplements. Screening for physical frailty in non-COVID patients and in older populations has been integrated in primary health care in some countries as an attempt to target immune vulnerability among those individuals during the current outbreak. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something if we actually talked about this? There's a whole bunch of information in here that reiterates what I've been sharing about body composition, having high levels of adipose on your body versus uh, you know, decent amounts of muscle. What is the answer? When people ask me, well, how much should you have? I'm going to leave that up to you and your practitioner. I don't know you and I don't know what you look like. And I don't know what your body feels like when it comes to palpation of your musculoskeletal system. And so I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you that there are ways to assess this. And I think that probably the easiest one would be a DEXA scan. That seems to be somewhat available for people. It's inexpensive. It's a it's an x-ray, basically. It's a full-body x-ray. It'll tell you what your bone mass is and whether you have osteoporosis, which I think is helpful, especially if you're a woman. It'll tell you if you what your muscle mass percentage is, what your body fat percentage is. And it's not 100% accurate, but it gives you a really nice, especially if you're dehydrated, but it gives you a nice breakdown of how much muscle your arms have, how much muscle your legs have, how much visceral fat you have. So I think it's a nice, nice scan to have done if you can access this. I would push your practitioner to get you one. Um, there are places in town here in Portland where you can go in and pay cash and they're a hundred bucks or a hundred something bucks. But I don't know how it is for where you live and your state or your country, but a DEXA scan, I, I wouldn't give up. I would continue to try to push and find a DEXA scan if you can. You could do MRI or CT, but I've already covered why I'm not a fan of that. And really, that's the best ways to scan or to assess for um, sarcopenia and to really get a measurement of your skeletal muscle mass. And that way, you can make changes to improve your skeletal muscle mass and decrease your fat mass and improve your bone quality, and you will have some answers. It does not tell you, a DEXA scan does not tell you if your muscle has been marbled up with fat, but it will at least give you a, a starting point. And I think that that's really helpful for people. I'll tell you how I assess in my practice. 
<laughs> and you're going to, if you followed me for any amount of time, you're going to be like, oh, this is so Dr. Tina. If you're not training three times a week, if you're not strength training three times a week, and if you're not getting enough animal protein in your diet, and you're over the age of 40, I consider you frail. That's that's my quick and dirty. Now, I know some want to argue about the animal protein, and we don't have to. If you're a really, really, really good vegetarian or a good vegan, and you've got your amino acid profile all handled, and your protein combining all dialed in, and your gut is in perfect health, and you're absorbing everything that you're eating, then good on you, and we can leave it there. But if you're not training three times a week, and now this training can encompass all kinds of things. I like strength training with weights. You could be doing bands. Body weight is better than nothing. Um, Somebody asked me if tennis counts. Nope. I think tennis is nice. I consider tennis cardio. Tennis is not strength training. I have known some elderly tennis players with a lot of sarcopenia and a lot of joint issues, and and they've been playing tennis their whole life. So I'm going to say no to that. And they didn't have good muscle mass. Yoga, no. Yoga is nice and it can strengthen you, but it standalone, no. I'm talking resistance training. You're, you have to fight gravity. And the only way to really do that is with some weights. Please listen to episode 12 again with um, coach Tony Gracia so you can understand how to do that safely because I don't think people should just up and go watch a YouTube video and call it good. I think it's a skill and we don't want it, you to get hurt especially if you're over 40 or you have any orthopedic faults, we don't want you to make those worse. If you have a bad knee or a bad hip, we don't want to make that worse. So if you are over the age of 40 and you're not strength training three times a week and you're not getting enough protein, what is enough protein? I'm going to say roughly a gram per pound of body weight. So I weigh 140 pounds. I should be getting about 140 grams. Do I get that much? No. I try. I sure do try though. And I'm going to give you some ideas on how to help with that because simply increasing your protein can actually have a huge impact on your sarcopenia or your frailty. And I'll tell you some actual clinical, some clinical studies. Uh, I'm sorry, clinical cases that I have shown that in. All right. So that's DEXA. There Again, there's other ways to do it and you can choose your own. I'm not a huge fan of the full body CT because it's a lot of radiation and I'm not a big fan of the full body MRI because it's a lot of magnetic energy. And like I said, those often will require some contrast and I'm not a, at all a fan of the contrast that is used in those studies, the gadolinium. In fact, I don't know, I mean, unless I'm dying, like literally dying, um, I'm not going to let them inject gadolinium into me. I had it once and I got very sick after. And then, of course, years later, I went down the rabbit hole of studying it and I am not a fan of it. So sarcopenia and related conditions, including osteosarcopenic obesity, which is a triad of osteoporosis, sarcopenia and obesity. So when your fat cells become more abundant and inflamed, and your muscles start to waste because of the presence of that inflammatory fat, your bones start to go too. And all of this is really a consequence of inactivity more than anything. So if you start becoming active and you, I know it sounds like really daunting and you're probably listening going, oh my God, where do I start? I'm going to share with you how to do that because I know this can be really overwhelming, but it's just a matter of getting moving and getting eating. You got to eat the right stuff. You got to move. You got to sleep. Just focus on those things. (laughs) It's as simple as that. Because if you do, you'll start to drink more water. You'll choose better nutritiously dense foods. If you're focusing on getting enough protein, you're not going to have room for a bunch of junk. And if you start moving, just start walking. Just start somewhere, right? Start moving and you're going to start getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You're going to get better endurance. And then you're going to get motivated to start doing some of the more specific strength training things that I would say you should do. Um, So these are major risk factors for SARS-CoV-2 infections, and they are widespread in our in our modern society, they contribute to the severity of COVID-19 by potentiating cytokine storms and respiratory failure, which are the hallmarks of death from COVID-19. The detection of sarcopenia in vulnerable groups, mainly older and persons with chronic non-communicable diseases. Chronic non-communicable diseases are things like obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, etc. Should proceed from the evaluation of muscle strength by simple measures such as grip strength, You've heard me talk about grip strength, especially if you did the Don't Be Zombie Bait Challenge, and to the evaluation of muscle mass in those with proven weakness. 
Muscle mass loss may be best detected by MRI and CT. That was the conclusions of this paper. However, due to the high cost, they suggest cheaper methods such as DEXA or ultrasound. Ultrasound can be decent as well if you can find a facility that can do that for you. So that is some of the data in the literature that I wanted to share with you. Now, quickly, what can we do about it? Being too overweight or too thin puts one at risk, period, okay? So keep that in mind. You're not immune to this if you're thin, rail thin. If you're rail thin, you're actually at risk too. If you're overweight, you're actually at risk too. I ask you this, is your doctor asking you about strength training? Is your doctor screening you for frailty and muscle wasting? If not, ask them to. Is your doctor screening you for metabolic syndrome? Ask them to. This is easy stuff. This is low-hanging fruit. What can you do right now? You can increase your protein intake. You can start walking. You can start moving. You can start doing body weight exercises. You can go listen to the podcasts that I'm going to link that are from the Dr. Tina show where I've interviewed people or I've thrown down the um, details about different topics so that you can become more educated around this. As far as supplements go, I really do think there is a place for them. I'll tell you a story. I had a 95-year-old patient. She was my mentor's oldest patient, the sweetest little lady. And she laid down on my table. She was experiencing horrific thoracic pain, which is your mid-spine right around the bra strap area. And she laid down on her stomach on my table. And all I could see was her spine. I could literally see her spine through her skin. There was no muscle around it. There was no fat. There was no tissue integrity, just thin, paper-thin skin and a spine. And so I put her on whey protein powder and I got her doing at least one shake a day. I didn't care what she put it in. She could put it in water or some kind of milk that she liked. I don't really care. Just take one scoop a day, make sure that your gut handles it fine and then work up to two scoops a day. And she started doing that. She came back about, I don't know, I want to say six weeks later, she laid down on my table and there was tissue around her spine. She did nothing else. She changed nothing else, you guys. She didn't increase her. She didn't eat more protein in the form of meat or food source. She ate, she did smoothies. And while I'm not a huge fan of living off of smoothies, in her case, it was very helpful for her. Her brain cognition was much better. Her mood was better. Her affect was better. But most importantly, I could actually palpate tissue around the spine now and the skin wasn't so thin. And so I thought, you know what? Hey, this is the best case study I've ever seen for protein powder. Whey protein powder, I prefer. I don't prefer a pea source. I don't think that we can extract nutrients out of um, vegetables the way that we've been told. You can listen to my interview with um, Dr. Paul Saladino, the carnivore MD. I think it's episode eight of my podcast, The Dr. Tina Show, and he goes into that. I'm not, I, I really do think plant sources of protein are pretty, um, and I know I'll probably get some hate for this, but I just think they're inferior. And then I have a product called Prelift, which I love. It has creatine. Creatine is really, really critical. Uh, I just put my mom's elderly dog on creatine. Creatine is such a, an enormously helpful supplement when it comes to wasting and frailty, and especially in old age. And so I think creatine is something for everyone. It does wonderful things for your cognition as well. So we can all benefit from it, but I have it in my pre-lift formula. There's also some mitochondrial supportive nutrients in that pre-lift. So the pre-lift and the post-lift are really, we should just call it the anti-frailty formula. There's some other things you want to do. Uh, Of course, we want vitamin C and zinc and D, and this isn't just for the immune support aspect. I used to give patients, every patient, those supplements when I was in practice because it's wonderful for collagen. So I consider those collagen support nutrients and hence why I think they are helpful in the immune part of things. Uh, So vitamin C and zinc, and D, I have those in my store, but any will do. And I think those are going to be very helpful. Magnesium is important because it helps you absorb the, vi- the vitamin D. When you end up in this sort of chronically inflamed, frail, sarcopenic, metabolic dysfunction cycle, it all goes together. Hopefully I've made a case for that in this podcast. You tend to not absorb your D well. And so people will say, I'm taking so much vitamin D, my levels aren't going up. Lots of reasons for that. I will try to do a future podcast on the reasons why people don't absorb D and what the benefits and minuses are of oral supplementation. But for now, 
I think it is important that people have adequate levels. Again, check with your practitioner. I can't tell you how much of any of these things to take. But I do know that it is important, especially for the metabolic syndrome inflammatory state, that you have magnesium on board. And I have a wonderful product called Relax Tonic. The reason I love it is because not only is it calming with L-theanine and GABA, but it has this wonderful uh, ingredient called myo-inositol, which does awesome things for your hormones and it specifically via that mechanism helps with muscle. So Relax Tonic, it's a no-brainer. Everybody loves it. It's my best-selling product. At the very least, get a couple scoops of that in you every day. Get some whey protein on board. Not all whey protein is the same. I offer a very high-quality New Zealand whey. It's clean. It's uh, it's well-sourced, and it works. And then the pre-lift, I think, is a wonderful addition. We should call it something different probably because it's got such a broad coverage of um, – benefits. And then lastly, if you are interested, if you've heard me talk about testosterone at all, particularly with women, women tend to suffer from sarcopenia and frailty at much higher rates than men because of the hormonal differences. There is a product in my line that doesn't get a lot of play. It's called Libido Vitality. I absolutely love it. It is a androgen supporter. Androgens are your um, like testosterone is your main androgen. And libido vitality does an amazing job to boost testosterone. And so I don't want to say that it is a, a testosterone support because that would be incorrect, but it does contain nutrients that does help your androgens work better. And it naturally helps support um, their levels. So I would consider that whether you're a male or female, if you're dealing with frailty. And it definitely can help get you going on the way to strength. Uh, It's been very helpful to me post-COVID because I just got, I kind of got eaten up. Like my butt went away. (laughs) I lost a lot of muscle mass and it took me a few weeks in the gym to get back to even feeling like I had my balance, right? I didn't even have enough strength to have the grip strength and the balance that I was accustomed to. And so libido vitality has been really helpful for that. So again, none of this is prevention, treatment, or cure. I'm not suggesting you take any of these things without talking to your practitioner. Of course, this is not medical advice. This is education. But I have found that in clinical practice, these and in the studies that all of these ingredients that I'm mentioning have been supportive to combating the frailty sequelae. So we don't, if we are having frailty induced, if you're in your 30s and you've never lifted a weight and you've had a few kids and you feel really weak and you've got some extra weight on you, you're frail. You're dealing with frailty. So keep that in mind. Guys, you too, if you're sitting around drinking beer and you're not lifting weights and you don't have much muscle mass, but you know, middle age hasn't caught up yet, you really haven't gotten the dad bod or like the pudge around the middle, you still can be in a a pre-frail state. And so it's important to keep yourself moving in the right direction. This is why I tell everybody to strength train. This is why I'm so passionate about it. So I hope that's helpful. You guys can check that out in my store. Use the code STRENGTH10, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H, 10 strength 10 that'll get you 10% off my whole store but I will put these together in a bundle for you in there so that you can see them all and this is what I would encourage everybody to consider as ingredients to help combat frailty and subsequently the sarcopenia and the metabolic dysfunction that comes with it so we will see you guys next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.